hey, I'm I'm honking over here. I'm honking. I'm honking. I'm tooting. I'm I'm blowing. Um, I'm freaking. This is GI <laughs> stuff. What's that? No, I was I was you know I'm I'm, a, I'm trying to be like a saxophone. <laughs> I'm tooting, I'm honking. I thought, I thought I'm... it was all gut stuff. Oh no. Oh yeah, right. Well see that's the thing is like, you know, the saxophone is uh basically just a, a large intestine. Thought of first as <laughs> yeah. a diarrhea. That's machine. right. It was was first conceived as um uh yeah, just just a toilet, honestly, just a urinal. Hey there, hey. folks, and welcome to how I, oh, hear I didn't see it. There. Uh my name is Jordan. It's me. It's Max. I'm back. And we're here to talk at you once again about uh, our understanding of music, of the world of culture, of the nerdy stuff that we like to dive into. Uh, and we have a great episode for you. That's right. We're talking, we're talking, we're talking and sex. Saxophones. We're talking saxophones. The tentative title for this, in my mind, is uh, Moments in the History of the Saxophone on the Planet Earth. That's right. Uh, And and actually, you know, one of of the things that I was thinking about a lot going into this was um, the famous uh, track by Ernie from Sesame Street um, that was, you know... uh, you, you got to put down the ducky, you know. You got to put down the ducky if you want to learn to play the saxophone. So that's ki- that's kind of oh. like a guiding light for me. And of course, it's the owl. I forget his name, but it's the owl who's teaching Ernie to play the saxophone. But he can't, he he can't play the saxophone without squeaking the rubber ducky, and it's really messing up his, um, sort of like his solo. And so he has to learn how to put down the ducky sure. if he wants to learn to play the saxophone. So that I was just that was sure. kind of banging around in my head, you know, while I was thinking about this well don't give the episode away okay, sorry before we uh so that's coming up later and um we just want to thank everybody for listening to our uh re reintroduction into the podcasting scene for listening to the george clinton episode um and also if you've checked out our patreon uh which is live now and full of benefits yep at several different tiers um huge shout out to jeffrey d um <laughs> Je- jeffy d have a last name for you but <laughs> Big shout out, big thank you. Uh, can't say enough. Um, in our, our top level fan of neither account, That's correct. Um, our membership level on Patreon. Um, thank you for checking that out. If you haven't, please go check it out. Uh, we would love your support, but we also just want to keep making uh, content and really just flooding the market with our voices and our opinions and our uh, schemes. Yeah, like 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 um, like one of the more recent George Clinton tracks says, uh, "I want to make you sick of me." Yeah, there you go. Um, but but uh, yeah, wait, in order to find is, that, you're gonna find that it, it's strange that you wait 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 wait. We're learning how to we're learning how to do plugs, folks, and so you gotta you gotta go to patreon.com forward slash how I hear it pod how I hear it pod. 
Well, that's well, that's just a website, though, Max. What are they going to find there? Well, they're going to find apps. They're going to find bonus content, um, including um, a fantastic foray into um, like a, a new a new sort of series that is uh, the Big Buff Movie Buffs, where the your buff your favorite buff movie buffs <laughs> us <laughs> are uh, are looking yeah. at rock docs. Um, looking at rock, looking at like, I think really it's much broader than that. Mm. We're going to look at almost anything that has been made uh, cinematically about uh, music. Yeah, if it's got a song in it, like mostly rock docs. If it's got music in it and it's a movie, we're there. We talk a lot of shit about some kind of monster. Yeah, which is our first episode, uh, and it, which is only right now available behind the Patreon paywall, uh, which is just what our corporate um negotiators our lawyers have uh you know that's that's what our contracts demand of us at the the moment and um but otherwise you can also find a spotify playlist that is specific to each episode that we put out Uh, we have one for the george clinton episode out right now there's also a uh on the top tier bookmarks of max and i's ugly faces yes indeed um with black metal font there are stickers we will send you junk we don't care who you are or what you want. Or if you want or them. Or how you will get received mail. Dude, honestly. We will find a way to give you our fucking junk. I don't care if you're green, purple, uh, you know. You could be anybody. Yeah. You're going to wake up one day with a sticker of Max's face on your Subaru Forester. <laughs> And it's gonna be amazing. Say, is it? This isn't my beautiful Forester, but it, but it is. <laughs> but it Unfortunately, is. Yeah. that is your car that we have put stickers of my face all over the windshield, so facing th- in. <laughs> so thank you for checking that out, uh, preemptively and postemptively, if you've already done that, uh, and thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, we're very excited to get on with it, but beforehand, we do have one of our longest. And most uh, most demanding, and honestly, most emotionally cathartic. I would say taxing, uh, but yeah. Yeah, cathartic. Right. Well, catharsis can be taxing. That's true. Yeah, this is Max's Music Facts, and we'll have the opening music right here. Bow! Ooh, yeah. And we're back. Here we go. All right. So I want to, last time we kind of did, we kind of did this without... Uh, figuring it out beforehand, but I want to set some more rules. Okay. I love rules. You know, I <laughs> well, and we rules. have to make it more complicated because I'm not losing enough. I only lose every time. Yeah. So you need to blindfold yourself. <laughs> I need to do it up, hanging upside down. Uh, here's what I want to do. I'm literally only going to read off a headline, and it's going to be three headlines. Oh, ooh. Two of which are true. I like this. One of which is a total fabrication that I've made up. But I'm just going to read off headlines, and there are no follow-up questions. No discussion. There's nothing else. Uh, I do want to discuss after the fact, after you've, after you've made your choice, right. after you've made your guess. Because uh, I think doing that last time was very fun. I have a good feeling about this. But I want to just do it just a straightforward, just the headline. Because I think in the past we have kind of talked about it. And I don't know how prying you are or if you're really trying to get into my psyche or get into my head. I'm always trying to do that. But I want you out of my head. I don't want you in my head anymore. You know what this is? This is, this is Max's Music Facts 
just the facts edition. Just the facts, ma'am. And then the and the music will be right here. Da da ba sa ba ta. There we go. There what? That was it. You've been living in my head rent free for a while, and I'm just kicking you out, buddy. Yeah, terrible landlord. Uh, are you ready? Yes. Let's go. Okay, number one. Uh, Black Sabbath's Geezer Butler calls WAP, W-A-P, by Cardi B, disgusting. Number two. Dolly Parton's COVID research funding uh, is touted by Lindsey Graham as an act of God. Okay. Uh, Number three. John Lydon also known as Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols, suffers a flea bite on his penis after a squirrel rescue. Those are your three headlines, Max. I will repeat each headline okay. if you need it, but I think don't you dare ask me. I think I remember anything. them all. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that Lindsey Graham would not have said that uh, anything that Dolly Parton does is an act of God because she is obviously um, a godless feminist. Uh, so that's my answer. Final answer. That's correct. Ding, 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 ding. Ooh, 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 ooh. I just made that one up. Hell yes, dude. I thought it sounded okay, but you know, I, I just like Dolly Parton is just. Been, I, I was trying to get. I was trying to get in right under the radar. You but know? she's. But see, I just. I knew enough that she's been claimed yeah. by the by the extremely online left. You know. Yeah. No. And she has. That's for sure. Um. But I would like to get into the the two true ones right here. Yeah. Uh, Black <laughs> Sabbath's Geezer Butler, calling. Is it? How do you say the song out Wop. loud? This is. I think it's okay for me to ask. I'm over thirty. <laughs> Uh, and I think it's okay for me to ask questions like this respectfully. Yeah. yeah. Why well, are we having the talk? Are you, do you want to have the sex talk? Is it not WAP? No, it's WAP. You don't say like just W A P. I mean, it's not an acronym. There, there's no decimals or periods. No. Well, it is. I mean, it is. It does stand for something. You're aware of that. Ex- yeah, <laughs> but it isn't. Uh, it isn't legally an acronym based on the uh rules that i learned in college the patent law from the ap ap press style book oh yeah <laughs> style guide well wait what's your question yeah it's wap yeah wap so geezer butler calling wap disgusting uh is sort of like in my mind who's doing these interviews <laughs> where you're just trying to call an old asshole who was like a drummer in a rock band from Forever Go, or it was Geezer Butler was the drummer, right? I have no or idea. That was. Nah, I might have just ruined it for myself. Either way, <laughs> Geezer Geezer Butler. It's an incredible name. Uh, father of Win Butler from Arcade Fire. Oh. Uh, God, how embarrassed he must be! Either. Come on. <laughs> I know, right? Jeez. But you know what I mean. Like, what? He's the bassist, of course. He's right. the bassist. I knew that. Um, but you know who's going into these interviews saying like, "Well, oh yeah," and a geezer. What do you think about this old Cardi B WAP song? Well, I guess I mean, you know who gives a shit? I, you know, I haven't read the. Even if he loved it, who gives a shit what this guy thinks about it? You know, he was like in a heavy metal band. He was in Black Sabbath decades ago at this yeah. point, when they were even relevant. Well, 
Uh, well, I guess what I wonder, you know, I mean, this is the age of gotcha journalism. You know what I mean? And I'm just one and and fake news, but we can set that aside for a second. You think someone, you think someone gotcha'd him? Well, I think he. It's clear he got got because that's not a popular thing to say these days. But at, at the same time, we know not a good look. I mean, but but you know, he's also of the age of like the, you know, I don't know how to open a PDF. You know, he's part of that generation sure. as well for sure. Um, yeah, but I guess the other thing is like you know. I I would like to was it based on an interview or it, I feel like it just could have just as easily been like, you know, pulled from Twitter or like, you know what I mean? Oh, it was just something he tweeted out like, oh, this is disgusting. Right. You know what I mean? It's like like <laughs> maybe and like and like and like for all I know, like I haven't looked up his social media. Maybe he's a shit poster. Like maybe he's beat. Maybe he's like irony poisoned as as all of us are. Um, so that's the thing is like that, that, that's, that's the problem with with. You know, and I, I like this this new version of the game because it's like, um, this is how most people read articles: is they just read the headline and then repost it on, on their social media. And so I'm I'm really happy to participate in that, uh, but, and yet, but also, you know, quality journalism requires a little bit of context. So so yeah. I want to know where was Geezer at. Where, where was his mind at? You know, like, was his blood sugar low? You know what I mean? Like, this is the stuff we need to know <laughs> before we can, like, form an opinion. Sure. Um, sure. You, know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, what, what were the extenuating circumstances of this statement that he made? That's what I need to know. Uh, let's see. I'm almost there right now. <laughs> so it looks like he was in some sort of an interview okay. speaking to Kerrang. Okay. And he was talking about how Black Sabbath was viewed as the devil's music and they were all viewed as Satanists mm-hmm. when Sabbath came out. Um, and he's kind of talking about how, yeah, well, Elvis, people said he was Satan too, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But I have to say, though, that Cardi B, Cardi B pa- pisses me off with that WAP song. It's disgusting. But there you go. <laughs> well, that answers it, folks. Uh, you, you know, you heard it here second or third. Um geezer he doesn't he know what he's talking here, about later on this is really good know. to put it on an album fair enough <laughs> but to put it out as a single that's a bit much <laughs> then again i'm 71 a bloody old goat <laughs> which i think is a funny way to criticize the just the song if you put it feels just later on an album right but you want you want that to be a single you want it to be a a hit song you want it to be a hit single that's a, a little much. Well, and it is so funny like it's like are you are Very you really funny. like giving like business advice to like one of the most like you know well-known pop artists like you know like, like like of the moment like i don't know that's uh but you know yeah like he has, at least has a little bit of self-awareness enough to say like also i'm not relevant anymore so why are you even talking to me <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> It's yeah, it is. That's what it feels like to me so much is just like, well, we needed someone to have a uh, like wilder reaction that we could publish. So we went to a fucking cave and found this caveman (laughs) who was immediately appalled (laughs) at the WAP video. (laughs) It's like, yeah, obviously, like, you know, and it's like also like if you're say you're 71 and you're like hearing like, you know. The, like the macaroni pot reference or something like that for the first time 
and like you're and like that's explained to you in detail by a journalist like what that means you know what i mean and, and you know look yeah. like and and all of a sudden it starts bringing up all these memories of you know all of the sort of like sexually transmitted uh infections and everything that you've had over over the course of your life and you know as a as a as a 70s rock star and um you know i don't know but what what can he say i guess except for uh i i'm old <laughs> like, well, yeah uh but but i do which, also want to which brings me yeah i want to touch on that that johnny rotten stuff too yeah what do you think about that the uh john lyden suffers a flea bite on his penis after a squirrel rescue <laughs> how does that make it from an actual real in irl event to uh, a headline you know what how does that story unfold and someone is just handed a like transcript somewhere down the line and they're like just just fucking just just run it, it. you know hey, stop the presses just run stop it. the presses breaking news we've got, we've got nothing else <laughs> it's funny because apart uh, and i can also i can read you the rest of this story too sure i mean yeah yeah i need that context it's just fucking so insane uh so he has been bringing squirrels into his home sure he uh he was befriending squirrels at his house in venice beach yeah yeah um he was here's the quote ready i looked down there this morning at me willy and there's a fucking flea bite (laughs) on it and there's another one on the inside of my leg (laughs) The bites, wow, last night was murder because of it, the itching too. It's such a poxy thing to get caught out on. <laughs> the only way around it, because I'm not going to blame the poor little squirrels, is to Vaseline my legs. <laughs> He's got to put Vaseline on his legs? Is that a is that a itching solution? And before you feel bad for Johnny Rotten, or John Lydon, uh, you, you know, we all, all of us Mr. love Rotten. that one public image LTD record, sure. Uh, yeah. But he has just time and time again doubled down on his support for Donald Trump. Uh, is just a general turd of a person. And remember that the sex pistol pistols were just a, a corporate entity yeah. in the first place. You know, th- this guy is a a complete turd. Yeah, he's a you know. Look, I mean, yes, he's a shithead. Um, but hasn't he always been a shithead? Um, always been. A shithead. Isn't that what we? You know, when we did admire what we do admire about Johnny Rotten, wasn't wasn't that always what we admired about him? <laughs> was was yeah. stirring the pot I mean, this, and like being from England and supporting Trump is like that's pretty good, you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, what? Yeah, he's also been the, there. Are uh, it, it does seem. Uh, you know, it's it's like the Giuliani thing where, you know, people are like, man, the Johnny Rotten used to be a punk. He used to be, he was in the Sex Pistols, man. He talked about, like, the the Queen of England. And he didn't really care for her, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, <laughs> it's like, that's great. But, you know, he was always just kind of this, just following a, what was realistically a neoconservative trend, even in the 80s, uh, even, even in the 70s at that point. Uh, so it's not really surprising that he would come out in favor of Trump. It somehow is not also surprising that he had a flea bite on his <laughs> penis 
because he was befriending squirrels and letting them into his apartment that seems to track uh in my mind yeah <laughs> with like the kind of person i imagine him to be absolutely is this, he's letting squirrels into his house and he couldn't blame them for biting him on the dick or whatever i don't know uh but it's sort of like the giuliani thing where people are like he used to be america's mayor and now he's like borat gotcha him <laughs> as a pedophile and and he's a racist asshole all of a sudden and it's right. like no it's not all of a sudden like this guy has been a racist asshole for a long long time it's just not convenient to like write it off anymore or whatever Yeah, and it just seems to me like like think about john lyden it's like you know like look he what if nothing else he knows how to stay relevant do you know what i mean it's like like that's like like being shocking sure. is is what he knows how to do and he does it you know what i mean very well and, and and to the point where like he like kind of sparked a whole discourse on the webs on the interwebs about punk and like did, did, you, did you see that tiktok that was circulating right after like the kind of like the image of him wearing a maga shirt w- went viral Right. And there was a TikTok of a girl saying... People were, were very split on what punk meant. Well, yeah, but there's this one particular TikTok video where this there's this girl who's you know, seems very nice, uh, was saying, um, I've academically studied punk. And that was, the, that was the phrase that I think really sent everybody on the internet uh, into a tizzy because everyone was like, here we go. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. oh, here we, oh, we've got uh, an academic punk. We've got you know oh professor punk <laughs> over here you know what i mean like uh, and and of course her Finally. Well, and of course her you know her thesis was that um actually the origins of punk are among uh the poc the woc um queer people you know what i mean and like and and i think you know in some ways it's like kind of like a like transposing an argument about like dance music or something like that, or like, like disco or, or electronic music, which like you can make those kinds of arguments or like, there is some kind of like historical, like conversation. There's some kind of conversation to be had there about the, the true origins of what became really commercially successful music. But in the case of punk, um, I think it's, it's not nowhere near as clear cut as, as that. I think it's fair to say that like, there have always been, you know, musicians, of from all different walks of life who have like worked along for that ride from day one. But, um, sure. But, but, you know, I, I just, I just, I think that's what really a lot of people objected to. Uh, and I don't know, like in, in comparison to that, like, like, yeah, like, like, like we're saying, Johnny Rotten is kind of, uh, he is kind of indicative of one strain that has always been there. Uh, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this concludes Max's musical facts. It's one, I think it's one win for you this season and one win for me so far. So far. Uh, so we'll see how this progresses. Um, I think we'll take maybe a short little musical break here and then come back on the other side and talk about uh, the saxophone. Don't touch that dial. Don't freaking touch it. Stop it. Stop touching it. honking i'm honking i'm tooting i'm tooting i'm honking honk 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 
gonna honk 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 around the clonk. I don't know why this is. <laughs> None of the nothing about the intonation you have is welcoming. Uh, you know. So look, I mean, but it is pretty emblematic of of the saxophone. Look, what you know? What else does a saxophone do if it doesn't honk? Which brings me to the main point of our episode. Welcome back. Thank you for listening sa- to if our, a saxophone, our podcast. If a saxophone honks and no one's around to hear it, did it even honk? That's the main question. And that's and that's what we'll be exploring <laughs> for the next two hours. <laughs> part one. Thank this is part one joining, of an exploration. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we wanted to talk about... Uh, our favorite uh, instrument. One musical instrument. Yeah. We wanted to take pick an item and sort of uh, have this lens focused in on it as we move through history, uh, as we move through uh, on that same timeline, the different shifting uh, cultural perspectives, the uh, different ways that it was utilized by people in power, people not in power, um, just to give us this like this framework and, and kind of bring us to where we're at today with how that particular instrument is used. And that particular instrument is the saxophone, uh, which was invented by Adolf Sax in the 1840s. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Pretty pause, sus pause, name, pause, if you ask pause, me. Pause. Yeah, pause. What was his name again? Pause. Adolf Whoa, Sachs. whoa, whoa, whoa. Pause. No, okay, I got it. <laughs> That, I got it. That guy's not making it onto a <laughs> under that United Airlines flight. I am not getting that name tattooed on my body anytime soon. In the eighteen, in the mid nineteenth century, yeah, um, yeah, it's invented by this this guy Adolf, whose father was a uh, a pioneer of sorts. Was known for making um, remarkably quality instruments um, in Belgium. Respect. Respect. Um, and so a lot of that training goes on to Sax, uh, who's, who then takes his uh, experiments in trying to create uh, a new kind of oboe. That's what he was trying to make when he initially stumbled onto the saxophone. He's trying to make a, a deeper, bassier type of uh, oboe right. well, uh, uh, to join the woodwind section. Right. So, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is like, to be clear, we're talking about woodwinds, folks. We're talking about reed instruments. Just in case, just so there's no confusion at all. <laughs> We're talking yeah, reeds, exactly. folks. The wood winds. And I think there's interesting stuff to, to know about this guy's life is that he had a childhood that was uh, known for its accidents, its trauma. He had, like, con- falling construction hit his head. He almost drowned. He was Jesus. Uh, ill and sick multiple times as, as a child. Um uh, his mother, there's only one known quote that she has said, and <laughs> she bore 11 children. Okay. Uh, very few of whom survived into adulthood. The only quote that she is known to have said is, the child is doomed to suffer. He won't live. Wow. Who who recorded, who, um, who keep track of that? I, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, Adolf, he was burned in a gunfire explosion. He was, you know, all of these different things happened to him as a child, and, and it you know, especially back then, it, it wouldn't have seemed like this is uh, a kid who's going to do much. Right, but in hindsight, right? you can hear all that trauma every time you hear the saxophone. It's yeah, sort of like, and then this is the part. Yeah. yeah, this is the part of the movie where <laughs> where 
<laughs> there's this golden saxophone off in the distance um but yeah he there's a call for support you know so uh eventually sax takes over his father's work right. um and the king of belgium wants to sponsor sax's work um and it's because the belgians the the french uh are feeling like their military bands mm-hmm. are just weak just weak sauce in comparison to germany and prussia at the time because they had those bands had uh these big brass instruments that they had this reach that there's like a tonal pitch and there's a volume that you can reach with those with that kind of instrument God, that, that isn't uh something you can reach with flutes or other woodwinds it's got a sting um, dude to be to be playing second sax you know exactly and so it's just this big like machismo contest uh in like the middle of the 1800s where these different kings and and other governments were just trying to say like well our band is going to be louder than yours right you know <laughs> and like the french and the and the um the belgian belgians belgians yeah the belch the the, the bulge the bulge uh were embarrassed right that their bands could not compete i'd be too shit. at all they were suboptimal. yeah you, you know, know all the all the wars up to that point had been battles of the bands and so it was a big deal right yeah um and so he gets a sponsor and he starts making these connections with people who are much higher up um and then uh at the same time he moves to france mm-hmm. which is he finds little success because the french government is in upheaval because of the the revolution um God. which leads to uh also his competitors stealing his design setting fire to his factory uh even trying to kill him have him killed yeah i was looking at um, i was looking at this that the fact that like there the there was an assassination attempt right on the guy that invented the saxophone that's incredible it's pretty crazy um but yeah and then so emperor napoleon uh rises to power and he's of course go figure napoleon wants to have a big old military band he wants them to be loud that's fair he wants them to be proud uh you know that all tracks right we're we're talking napoleon Uh, third right yes okay he was the failure he was he was not not his uncle or whoever like the 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 chad napoleon sorry yeah be clear i should have i should have said that uh it was louis napoleon yeah uh, who took the opportunity during the French Revolution to appoint himself as emperor. Um, as one does. And began paying 20,000 francs a month to build instruments for military bands. Um, and this is where we start to see how the sax uh, branches out. Because at the time, Adolf Sachs is not able to find any sort of a foothold in the conservatories or the traditional uh, Parisian orchestras that they, they don't want anything to do with him they don't want to compose new scores for their musicians they don't want to compose anything new for this new instrument because why what would the point be they saw it as absurd they saw it as like uh apart from culture or art right to have these like what were called sax horns then uh involved in in what was the height of you know the end of the end of uh european renaissance culture you mm-hmm. know is, is happening sort of right here right 
you know, it's been on a decline for quite some time, but you know, these revolutions are in, are happening. And the last thing that these people can do in their conservative musical circles is to just deny the saxophone its entry into their band. Sure. Um, and so we start to see across the water, across the pond, as they say, uh, in the United States, <laughs> as they say, in the United States, they see uh, in the Civil War that uh, sax horns begin to be purchased because they are loud and they, and they are like at this point being built with a design that really um, seems to be uh, a little bit more amenable to like military travel mm-hmm. you know, because the horn it used to be that the horns would just go straight up or straight out right and now they're designing them so that they have a more of a curve mm-hmm. like there's a a conical structure to the tone that's being developed and it is a little more appealing because you can walk with it and play at the same time yeah it's appealing it's appealing uh, all right this is oh what, it's appealing all right yeah we don't even have to show you a picture okay because real horns it's appealing. real horns have curves yeah exactly um and that's when we start to see the the first uses of the sax horn in the united states is, is in the civil war um and that's why the north and won. it's <laughs> and that's exactly why the North won. Wait, but I have, okay, but I have a question here because yeah. Uh, so I was I, I was looking at an interview with the author of a book called The Devil's Horn, which is all about saxophone, and he was saying sure. So so like you know, I guess my question would be like, why would people have been trying to assassinate him if he wasn't having any luck like getting people to to use his saxophone to begin with? Because what I'm what I'm looking at here is they're saying like, you know, because the saxophone was so flexible that it could sound like. It could sound like an oboe. It could sound like a bassoon. It could sound like a French horn, um, and so that was that right. was it was a threat to other instrument makers, and that's why they were doing yeah, it. I think that's what they felt. They formed an they formed an organization called the Association of United Instrument Makers to kill him. <laughs> yeah, right. That's crazy. Yeah, that other people who made instruments just thought uh, this guy's going to run us out of business like immediately. It is fun. to just And he was really, he, he came from almost nothing. Right. He, he like, you know, he didn't really have much and really just has been, had survived on a whim at that point. You know, he was thrown into debtor's prison mm. after, um, uh, Napoleon the third, uh, or no, after the French revolution, sorry, uh-huh. okay. his military contract was let up. Right. He was thrown into prison. Right. Um, at least he didn't get his head cut off. Am I right? Damn yeah somehow escaped from that um but yeah it's you know it's crazy that this is the story of an instrument that we understand so differently today right Right. and and we're going to get to that later stuff but i just looking back at all of these stories of like you know one assassination attempt could have gone better and we wouldn't have that that instrument at all we wouldn't have uh, most of what we consider like contemporary American music, and I just love imagining like um, the it's crazy, like the music maker mafia. Like that's just such a fun thing to me. Is like a bunch of like yeah. nerdy guys who like what like are just like inv- trying to invent a new flute <laughs> or something, and they're yeah and they get together and like all right, we got to make him an offer. We can't re- he can't refuse, you know, or like just like getting together in smoky rooms and doing double dealings. Yeah. Well, and it, it, yeah, and it's crazy that um, there are these other, like, maybe not double dealings, but there are, it's like he's selling uh, two militaries right. of the world. Right. He, he's trying to convince these different militaries and these, like, 
this is the beginning of the surge of nationalism that starts to happen at the turn of the century, you know, right. Uh, where we see world war one start to take place is where these people are like, no, but we're fucking louder and strong. Our military bands are way better than yours. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. and that just, that just, you know, highlights like how important music was in nation building and like creating a, in like in yeah. cultural identity. Um, Especially in cultural identity. Like that's how nationalism works. Right. right. Is that, there has to be this national cultural identity that everyone is sort of like able to get behind in one of the easiest ways, especially if a lot of your populace is maybe uh, illiterate or their working conditions are, are poor and they aren't maybe as well read or educated as right. uh, other parts of your, uh, your populace who are in academia involved in like uh, the upper dealings of the government, which is already corrupt as fuck the lower classes are, are able to listen to music and find some sort of connection through national identity to that. Uh, this is the way that like music works politically on this like macro level. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, as long as, you know, we like have like recorded accounts of, you know, Western thinkers and everything, people have been kind of concerned and worried about various instruments and how powerful they may or may not be. Um, you know, and I, and, you know, even though like maybe Plato was like a little bit too worried about the loot, you know, we could say in hindsight or something like that. I think we do, you know, we would agree that music is really powerful. Um, and like part of that is like you're saying, like, you know, like in a place like Italy or whatever, like they didn't have a, they weren't a, considering themselves a country that way or unified in that way until like the 20th century and certainly didn't have like a unified national language. Um, up sure, to that yeah. point. and but like and like that's you know music especially like instrumental music is like it bypasses that kind of like rationalization that that kicks in as soon as you start hearing words um so there's right. in some ways it has like a, a direct like neurological path like to your emotions right which is like that's where you want people when you're trying to convince them that um people who you don't even know who like just are geographically in a similar region to you um, are cl- are more like you than the people on the other side of that imaginary line who now you have to go and kill. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, and, mm-hmm. and so this part of our story ends with Adolf Sachs dying uh, almost penniless, Shoot. and he was bankrupted twice after this. Damn. Uh, even though he made some of the highest quality instruments and literally invented a whole new class of instruments. Um, that are used to this day God, man. Uh, in a v- multitude of different genres. He dies penniless. People just don't appreciate um, uh, genius, you know? Yeah, not, not in his time. Uh, but just to give you uh, an idea of the scale, this is after his death, but in the mid to late 1920s, there are more saxophones sold than electric guitars in the 60s. Well, okay, wait. In, in what year was it that those, that, or like what? era was it that the all those saxophones were being sold so in the mid to late the mid to late 1920s i see is when the people are buying more saxophones then than people were buying electric guitars in the 1960s wow yeah like reject you know reject modernity embrace the saxophone that's the takeaway sure and and that's that's i think the takeaway that is going to carry us through a lot of this conversation is that there's this idea of tradition and that things need to be kept the way they are and that there are different 
aspects of culture that are going to challenge that always. Mm -hmm. And they are always going to be vilified in some way. And uh, there's going to be like uh, a reproach to any idea that gets introduced to a a system that's sort of inherently uh, preoccupied with continuing the status quo. Right. Uh, And that also pertains to the saxophone and to the modern orchestra and, and to like conservatories and music and, and culture, and especially within the mm-hmm. the confines of nationalism and trying to con- continue a nationalist identity at this point in time in history. Right. All right. Conversation over. Yeah, that's it. I think we figured it out. No, wait, but, but wait, hang on. I think that's Pause. <laughs> what happened next? All right. So, <laughs> it, <laughs> uh, so he, um, so saxophone is invented. Yeah. It is played throughout the United States on both sides of the Civil War. Uh, oh. There are different regiments. Shoot, there who goes my theory. Are, are quoted as saying, uh, as being captured prisoner by, you know, the North or the South, vice versa. It doesn't really matter. There are quotes on either side saying, you know, the real punishment that they gave to us was that they took the, our instruments. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say you that know, they made them lose they, the like, saxophones. Yeah, well, so like to rub salt in the wound, you know, right. they took our fucking saxophones, Damn. which is so crazy. That's wild. Uh, because that these are soldiers fighting in the Civil War in the one of the biggest conflicts, not only for our nation, but, you know, worldwide, there, there are repercussions that are oh, yeah. still being felt today. And, uh, and th- these are soldiers who were fighting and were like, he took my fucking trumpet. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do you think I'm you, feeling? You know the famous story about you know the abolitionist John Brown, how he went um, from from door to door, just uh, demanding people's saxophones. Uh, for, if if they happened to be a, sl- a slave owner, he would he would take their saxophone and right in front of them, he would just chop it right in half with a sword, dude. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Pretty messed up. Wow. Yeah. No, that's not true. Damn. That's not true. I didn't think so, but <laughs> no, it was actually it was actually human beings that he was beheading. Um, yeah, that sounds more like John yeah, Brown. Ah, that that crazy guy. We love him though. Still pretty we cool. Love him. Yeah, we love him. Love to see it. Um, but we see so in the early 1900s, we do see um, jazz begin to be played, right? And this is seen as like, uh, especially in America, it's it's both regarded now, like in hindsight there's this sort of retrospective lens that we can look through that's very contradictory. It's hard to, it's tough to parse things out if you're just a, a journalist for like pitchfork, you know, it's hard. Wait. A lot of things are hard for pitchfork say like, journalists. Am I right? <laughs> Am I right, folks? <laughs> Woo! Zing! Got him. Okay, go ahead. Took him down. Ladies and gentlemen, don't even try going to pitchfork.com because we just took it down. That's correct. Canceled. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, there's people who would say jazz is a uniquely American music. Yeah. It is It is the American music. There's not much that we've invented, you know? Uh, we are a still, to this day, a relatively new nation, especially for our uh, immersive and, uh, you know, obfuscatory. That Ooh. was bad. I shouldn't have tried to use that Ooh. door. That word. Damn, yeah, I liked it. That was bad. I liked it. anyway um for what we do these days um there's not that much that we've really brought to the to the table culturally right right? but we can say jazz is 
quintessentially American. Okay, okay. To the New Orleans. Right, but... Um, but... But... Oh, yeah, go ahead. It is one of the only genres of music that is viewed as incredibly academic and intelligence focused and at the same time is viewed as lower class and collectivist you know that there's like this pull and attraction that you can have to jazz music uh, which features the saxophone by the way right sorry didn't want to spoil it it's it's sax heavy you could say uh, it, it was both culturally criticized in such a way that it was uh you know it was a it became a euphemism for jazz was the saxophone right. you know right and, and it was almost ubiquitous to see these academic critics talking about jazz in its heyday and to this day but at the same time it was seen as like this workers music around the world and there are different shades of that that we see uh as we shift around but in america it is seen mostly as the like african-american experience uh, as the black experience as black cultural identity there are uh, quotes from Kamasi Washington, who I will talk about later, who uh, will say, like, black people in America did, weren't allowed to read or to write, but they were allowed to make music. And so the, there is this cultural expressionism that is going on that has been studied uh, by that that specific culture that is very specifically American, you know, um, for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's... And perfect. I think that's arguable, though, Um like an author that I really like, uh, Robin D.G. Kelly, a historian who wrote a really good book about um, bebop pianist Thelonious Monk. And he's also written a book about um, African jazz musicians and American jazz musicians and like their collaborations, in, especially in like the 50s and 60s. But I think he makes the argument that jazz is actually, um, you know, its origin is like in pl- like New Orleans, but also like, like innovated along the coasts in places that are cosmopolitan and like places that are world ports global ports so sure. it is disputable i think the degree to which it is quintessentially american except for the i guess the fact that like you know there's something quintessentially american about like you know how about having a um heterogeneous culture just having a lot of different co- people coming together living alongside each other um you know so, so, so there you know what i mean you know you see what i'm saying here is like i think what he's trying to get at is like we, we, it's possible to overstate how American jazz is because, like, all music, it's like it's like this mixture uh, of, of cultural forms, particularly in the U.S. But um, Sure. And I also wanted to clarify another thing, which is that, you know, it wasn't – what is it was it seen as, like, academic and high-minded and work, like, kind of, like, low-class and, like, like, club music at the same time? Or were those, like, kind of different – periods and different waves of of thought about well i guess it. that's what i that's more of what i was trying to say about like trying to talk about jazz now is difficult right. because you have to fit within this mindset that it was two things at the same time you know but but at the same and I don't time think that's totally true right I and see. that's what that's what i was going to try to right. dissect later on is that it, it obviously wasn't you know right. it was it was two different experiences of the same thing um, that there are there were two different Americas. Go figure. Uh, back at then, least as two today. At least two. <laughs> yeah, at least two. And th- there were people who were creating an art form called jazz, and who were who were really like p- 
paving the way in all of these different ways uh, who, who were like multi-instrumentalists virtuosos who were um, regarded fondly in their time and who were not really given their their credit in due time or even even afterwards mm-hmm. you know who are who are sort of forgotten to this day because of the uh inherent imperialism of like the music industry at the time because white people were in charge of putting out those records and for like hundreds of years white people were in charge of writing about those records and it, it's not really like uh it's not even like a uh, a fair and balanced appreciation for the music it was everybody yeah, where, where was, was fox doing jazz you know yeah yeah where was, where was that News? fair and balanced coverage you know, the white working class was also enjoying jazz sure. at the same time in america but it wasn't really viewed in the same light it was known as like a very uh, low class degenerate music you know um right I, yeah i guess i guess but i'm wondering like you know i don't think it was necessarily thought of as like although it was like clearly we can say in hindsight it was art and that, you know, the, the artists who were making it, you know, thought that it was yeah. the best. You know what I mean? At the same time, it's like, you know, I, I think it's really historically situated, you know, maybe in like the 40s or the 50s and that kind of like post-war era that it becomes something that you sit down and listen to. And it becomes like more of an academic interest, right? Like right before it was like, that's dance music. Like that's club uh, but... music. Yeah. I think that's true, but I do think that there is this, like, especially with jazz, as opposed to other genres, there is this, like, predilection to completely intellectualizing the subject matter uh, almost immediately, right? Mm-hmm. You're almost immediately, you want to, you need to, like, very academically approach the subject matter, whereas with, like, uh, a rock record or uh right. even at the same time you know like a swing record or like uh right. you're, you're saying you're saying from our music might be. from our standpoint yeah but i, I think even back then i, I don't think know there about are that. people who were like immediately trying to intellectualize jazz uh because it was approached by both artists and critics before it was really approached by the people in the upper classes who would have tried to shut it down and who did inevitably try to shut it down in different ways across the world. Right. I, I guess I just, I don't, I don't mean to say that it's like widespread, the intellectualizing. I just, I just think that even back then it was inherently with the idea of jazz came this like intellectualization of like what you were, what we were doing with culture. You know, there was this sudden self-awareness that came along with a cultural movement and I think when I say like jazz was invented in New Orleans in America, I don't think that's, you know, abs- that's can't be absolutely true. I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't trust anybody. Uh, but <laughs> who does? <laughs> Sorry, that has nothing to do with the podcast. <laughs> um, the cultural movement that is jazz that is that exists completely outside of music itself. You know, the the free form expression that is like Jack Kerouac and and. and exists in literature and art and music and the Harlem Renaissance uh, poetry sure. and yeah, yeah, yeah. And so many different things mm-hmm. that jazz isn't necessarily just the music and it was a global cultural phenomenon that was rebellious in its time yeah. and because of that it was also academically scrutinized to a T in its time 
um, even if it wasn't immediately, you know. Right. I, I see what you're saying. That like, yeah, yeah. Does like, that make sense? Like, like, like looking back to like the Harlem Renaissance, for example, it's like, and this is one of the interesting things about like um, the history about American history is like the Harlem Renaissance was this explosion of you know art and 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 intellectual thought and everything that was coming from African American people who were creating their own publications, who owned their own newspapers, who were running their own businesses, um, and you know publishing poetry and like like Langston Hughes and that kind of stuff that was like taking the form of jazz and elevate but it was elevating it because it, at least in the sense of like you know like like in the way that white critics and white authors who were like hip and in the know um not stodgy at the time like like they were paying attention to what was going on with that um so like there was a way that sure. it was still at the margins um and it was still yeah, it was still, yeah you know yeah, what i yeah. mean but but it's interesting you know the the fact that like there were cultural institutions that were african-american that were black that were being built at that time and it's in that process that it was uh, it, um got that appreciation and that recognition as an art form so i think that's what i was what i was trying to say as well is that like you know it wasn't until and yeah i think that's what we were like kind of talking past a little bit is like it wasn't until like maybe like the post-war era like after the kind of swing era that it became something that was appreciated on a, in a widespread way as fine art rather than as popular music sure and there there obviously today are are a lot of different avenues for you to talk about uh rock music or, or, or hip-hop or everything mm-hmm. as like high art and, right. and as there should be that it should be like full-on conversation and discussion and analytical dispositions about everything mm-hmm. but i just i love the this contradiction that the saxophone and the jazz lives with since it's uh initial inception is that it is both like immediately immersive dance hall music and at the same time is discussed at length in the coffee house Mm -hmm. or in the cafe the next day you know like uh and we're like we're going on for hours about like you know well this drummer playing with this trio could have done this differently and would have made these choices and it's like this uh it's this like endless avenue of uh uh this new form of music that provided a lot of creative opportunity for thinking and right. thought and, and music and all sorts of things. And I think like you're saying, like we have, you know, we have to be conscious of the way that like it, it's when the attention of white academia or white criticism or white, um, you know, fandom turns its eye to it, that it, that it is like kind of given that status and like the historical record. And that happens really like yeah. in a specific moment of like the thirties and that kind of stuff when like people were like, going to the south to like record blues music like folkways like that kind of right. stuff and like it's very much a part of that and then like by the time jack kerouac and all the beats and everything are doing their thing in the 40s and 50s you know i mean like that's when like Nor- norman Mailer wrote a book called the white negro you know what i mean because it's about like that kind of looking back like like white bohemians you know what i mean like lo- like looking to what re- recognizing there was something hollow at the heart of you know of American culture of, of white American culture. You know what I mean? And realizing that they're, they're missing something and look, here's this music that is awesome to dance to. That makes you feel alive that, you know, you can recognize like whatever you're missing. It's right there. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, and I, you go ahead. Well, I want to come back to, to this, Yes, but I also want to cover uh, a couple other things. 
that have to do with like the Soviet Union and Germany? Just touch a couple other things. But is there anything else you want to talk about there? Um, Post Civil War society, nineteen twenties. I think I think yeah, that, like, that's the milieu, right? Like we're we're doing we're doing it up. We're doing capitalism. We're we're doing a capitalism in the U.S. We're doing a gilded we're age. We're trying it. We're gonna try it. Hey, look, we're doing the shit out of it, and people we'll are loving see it. How long it lasts? Yeah, yeah. And then like meanwhile, yeah, meanwhile, in in Russia, what's going on over there? We'll put Russian music. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Is that what it sounds like? Yeah. It, well, I was, hey. you know, if I, if you could see me. <laughs> do, 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 Hey, 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 hey. hey. Yeah. That's the famous uh, That's, sounds song yeah. by Russians. That's the famous I'm song. Sorry. Do, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. Do. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, But yeah, we see, Uh, so towards the end of the 1930s, we do see uh, after World War One. Um, Soviet leaders begin to take power, and under Stalin, um, they see jazz as the music of the oppressed African American minority, um, especially overseas. They, and they're thinking this could be another part of a political struggle that is going to impede the progress of communism, right? Um, and this is under Stalin. This isn't right. Uh, that pure communism, that straight up communism. Uh, well, yeah, but the, that, but that good, well, but the good stuff that would have helped everybody. I mean, but what, what this? No, I mean, what this is is the communist international, honestly, which is like you know this whole. Mm-hmm. It's a global project at this point where they're trying to spread it to as many countries as possible, and they correctly recognize right. that this area that was like that was called then the Black Belt in the U.S. was like basically right. a country within a country, and if you could, you know like reach the most oppressed class which was their theory of how you had a revolution which was you know african-american people then you had a great chance of sparking that kind of revolution so it was definitely part of that concerted effort but here's the thing is that while the soviet leaders saw it as the music of the oppressed which which should have been a a huge signifier and and an opportunity for them right they also proclaimed it as an example of the uh, bourgeois culture, right. uh, of of decadence, of capitalist dec- decadence, sure. and it was hugely criticized. You know, yeah. Fam- and that music was vilified. There were posters put out that said, "Today he plays jazz, tomorrow he'll betray his con- country," and and these are posters of like of men playing saxophones and things like that. Huh. Um, and wait, so the implication there, also- but the implication there, just to be clear, is like that. If a Russian were to play a saxophone, then the Russian would betray the Soviet Union. That it's like, yeah, right. it's the gateway gateway drug. I see to betrayal of of the country. And it is interesting. Well, it is interesting because it's like it's like you know, yeah. As soon as like the Revolutionary no, Party has had their revolution, they're yeah. like, okay, well, enough of that. You know, like just we're in power now. Chill out. Yeah, it, and it's like uh, you know, at the same time. In the Soviet Union, people were forced to ditch their saxophones. Like it was literally by name banned in the Soviet Union under Stalin. It was that's messed you up. weren't allowed to use your saxophone. Saxophonists were forced to hand over their instruments. <laughs> uh, people were arrested, imprisoned, and even exiled for playing the saxophone. Your gun, your badge, and your saxophone like to, right to now. Be, to be clear, they could have been playing a trumpet and they'd be fine. Okay. Yeah. You know. Right. Like that. It's. 
I think it's how many notes that sort of ridiculousness. It's that reaction of the Soviet Union. Yeah, and and it's really just they're scared that young people are going to take over and uh, start dancing, and you know once they start dancing, there's no stopping them. If you've seen um, any movie in the last thirty years. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we're talking about. about Footloose. That's right, folks. When young people... It was Footloose even made in the last 30 years? No, but you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Stomp the yard. Is that... Are you happy now? Hell yeah. <laughs> that's what I was... That's what I was thinking about. Now we're talking. Stomp the yard. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then also in, in Germany, you know, jazz is referred to as Frimlandisch or alien music. Yeah, that's what I call it. Uh, it's also referred to as way worse things than that Damn. that I won't say on air because of our contract legal. And you don't know how legal, to speak German. Legal contract. Obviously, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but there is a, a poster that was advertising a... Oh, my God. Where did it go? And while you're looking at it, degenerate, yeah, go ahead. Degenerate music. Uh, there was a poster <laughs> in 1938 that the Nazis put out advertising degenerate music exhibition. It featured a black monkey-like caricature Uh-oh. wearing a star of David badge oh my God. and playing the saxophone. Okay, so we but we, we, so just, it was like, we skipped a little so bit. That's time. a lot of things wrapped into one, right? right. Yeah. But we just, so we just uh, just to be clear, we just jumped ahead a little bit in time. So we got like Russia's doing their well, thing. Well, this is 1938, right? Okay. Yeah. So I mean, we did we did jump ahead, and and that's what I wanted to do is jump through R- Russia and uh, in Germany, uh, and talk about how in Germany, public and private dancing becomes prohibited. Uh, they people are also arrested. Uh, there's, you know, as soon as Hitler takes power, there's a lot of repression and prohibition. Strictly of Wagner. Jazz itself. Only Wagner. Um, the music is deemed to be racially imp- impure. Yep. Not surprising from Nazi Germany. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I want to talk about that and then go backwards a, a little bit and go back to America and see what's happening there. You know, like turn of the century, 1930s jazz is enormous. Oh, it's yeah. It's huge. Swing, they call it. Swing music. Big um, band. And we've all seen, all of us have seen uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, we've all seen, you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio remake of uh, The Great Gatsby. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what it that's exactly what it was like. That's what it was like, folks. No, I mean, <laughs> telling yeah, telling you as someone who was there. But but you know, like That's what it was like. But yeah, so this is this is an era of big band jazz where like like you know, there were band leaders uh, around the time like like Duke Ellington who were innovating the form. There can be no doubt, like like creating standards to, still to this day that are that are still played all the time, um, but very quickly, that was the kind of jazz that I think was accessible enough, that was open enough, that was clearly popular music that very very quickly became dominated by white bands and by white band leaders. We're talking we're talking Benny Goodman, you know what I mean? We're talking uh, who mm-hmm. are we talking? We're talking Gene Krupa, the famous drummer. Um, People like this, so I think I think pretty quickly, you know, that that started to happen. Well, and like icons from that time who were playing the saxophone, right? Like Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, Pharaoh Sanders. Not, um, in the, not in the thirties, though. 
No, not in the 30s. I guess uh, after the Great Depression. Right. After, um, you know, the World Peace Jubilee uh, that took place in Baltimore in the United States, uh, I believe. I could be wrong about that. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, this is the thing. My is no- like My notes are all over the place. Part, part of the jump there was that as a response to the popularity of big band and, and swing um, and how accessible it was and how, you know, it was basically being stolen out from, from under the feet of the inno- the innovators of the form that, that led to the development of a new, more avant-garde kind of jazz that was, you know, pioneered by those musicians, by Charlie Parker, by, you know, John Coltrane, by, um, you know, other musicians uh, who who played instruments other than the saxophone, but you know those those saxophonists um, and others who were playing music that was purposefully obtuse, that was like so so purposefully yeah. difficult and complex that it couldn't be imitated. Right, and I, I think that's like a big part of the Sonny Rollins story is where he talks about playing the music that he's playing because white people had started to already co-opt jazz in this way and especially with swing and so people like uh people the black people especially needed to start making bebop and uh and and jazz started to get more deep and more intricate and more uh you know it started to become a little bit harder for for white people to to copy and to pull off and because it was this learned cultural experience and because it was this like sort of um because it was a very original type of american music uh that was taught through these different generations who had grown up in the south and on the east coast and and in these like different like metropolitan hubs yeah in america uh which is where um sonny rollins grew up was in the south and, and and he saw with his grandmother who was an activist uh he saw these like different marches against the lynchings of young black men you know Hmm. um and that's where he was sort of in uh radicalized in this way as a as a young man i I guess radicalized is is a tough term to to use in that scenario actually because he was just he literally just observed a thing that was terribly and terribly wrong right And, and just uh it's where he he Maybe saw the injustice in the world. Right? Is, he was politicized in a way, uh, but, but was also like took to heart what uh, um, W. E. B. Um, du Bois Du Bois said to him, which was that anyone who uh, is able to attain some sort of status or celebrity in America, it is his duty to then talk about the plight of uh, the black person in in America. Mm-hmm. And so when Sonny Rollins, who becomes a, a, a popular saxophone player and a, a very popular jazz composer and musician, he releases Freedom Suite, uh, which is his first album where he he becomes a little more politically charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, and that's like I don't want to say a turning point, but it, it is a a beginning to where there's this position that jazz begins to take within american cultural society right yeah yeah i mean yeah and it's like it it, you know importantly it stopped being um popular music it stopped being dance music and it started being something that you sat down yeah and a club and you did and you just dug from your chair 
You know what I mean? It was, it was, and it was in that point that it was understood. It had to become like an art. It had to become like a high art at that point. Um, but yeah, and like another example, I think, you know, like maybe a little bit coming a little bit later would be like, uh, you know, by the time we get to the sixties, we get like John Coltrane doing a song like Alabama that kind of mimics that doesn't kind of it, it mimics the, um, the tone and inflection and the rhythm of Martin Luther King's speech after, um, the, after the bombing of, uh, a church in Alabama. Um, so like, like right. Yeah. Like you're right. saying like right away. I mean, like, but I think this goes back to that, what we were saying about the Harlem Renaissance and everything is that there's this strong, this, you know, history throughout the 20th century of the creation and maintenance of African-American cultural institutions who, who had to fight for that. And like the creation of a black intellectual class, people like W.E.B. Du Bois who were fighting their entire lives and careers to be recognized as like a gentleman, for example, like, like he was very, you know, careful to be photographed, looking as good as possible, looking when his suits and everything to, to be recognized, not just as a human being, but as like, you know, like a, a, an intellectual, you know, powerhouse uh, as like, as uh, a group of people that has something, some distinct, unique offer, uh, something, something unique and distinct to offer, to American culture, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, like, like we're seeing that um, the jump from swing and out of popular music into bebop is also like a political move in a lot of ways or, or like results in that music taking on a harder edge. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and so we've now we've come from a uh, musician, a, a musical instrument maker, Adolf Sax, uh, who grew up in Belgium to this point in time in, in America right. where the instrument is at the forefront of what is about to become the civil rights movement in the United States, right? right. And, 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 uh, and not just that, actually, before we move on, because also um, something I, I picked up from this interview... Um, with this dude who wrote uh the devil's horn was that it was it ended up empowering he says three disenfranchised groups in america so african-americans like we were just talking about but also women and children um because women Mm -hmm. in in the 1920s or 10s and 20s um they like women formed an all um, all all-female all-saxophone band um that was part it was kind of parallel to the suffrage movement for example, and also and like similar with with um, children, that like a lot of those saxophones that were being sold in the like twenties and thirties were um, like it, it was like the subsidization, like the beginning of public education and the subsidization of 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 music education, right? Right. So yeah, yeah. Saxophones are, have this unique position of like kind of being like this like you know entry point for all for these three different marginalized groups of people. Um, I think that's just really I had never heard about the, the the women and children thing yeah neither have i yeah and it's so there's a gap in time now where i want to i do want to give uh acknowledgement to what happened 60s 70s 80s right mm-hmm. because there are like very important things that happen with jazz especially but i don't have a touchstone for the saxophone during that period of time necessarily mm-hmm. uh, you know there are obviously Sun Ra is a great example of like you know 
uh, an artist who's talking about nuclear war and who's employing saxophone. Uh, but I don't know that I necessarily have the touchstone that fits in with what we're trying to do in this ep- episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, per se, John Coltrane is one of those figures who was like sure. always right on the. Um, and actually, something that I liked also from the same interview. Uh, I should figure out what the. I should say the name of the author. Uh, his name is Michael. We'll bleep this out. Michael Siegel, um, and he was pointing out that, like, you know, like a lot of musicians, a lot of like a lot of bebop musicians, but just musicians in general, you know, like a lot of be- bebop, uh, so, you know, guys were drug addicts, you know. Um, so like that, like Charlie Charlie Parker, famously, you know. Um, struggled with with heroin addiction and John Coltrane was was no exception but it was when he became when he got sober and then like for the last like 15 or 20 years of his life he became really deeply spiritual and he he points out that like the more spiritual he became the higher and higher uh register he started playing like he started playing smaller and smaller saxophones and like getting like like you know like like it's a little bit like that meme like the higher you know the higher your saxophone notes like the closer to god you know what I mean but uh which I think is just really funny but but he was always right on the cutting edge of you know, like he would take like a popular song, like uh, "My Favorite Things," and turn it like get, inflect it with this like Eastern, you know what I mean, like quality because he's playing on such a like playing it's a, it's a really high reedy way, um, and so he was like a mystical figure that that just kind of blended those that bebop era with the '60s and with like psychedelia, and he be, and for that reason he became like super duper popular at, both at that time and since. Um, Another figure that I think of when I think of saxophones in that era was Rashawn Roland Kirk, who famously would play multiple saxophones at once, like three saxophones at once. Um, and I mean, come on, legendary. Yeah. So that's the thing is like, I mean, that yeah, yeah, they're innovating. So we we saw jazz get pushed to some very real creative extremes, mm-hmm. right? In this period of time. Um and like most genres of music, it, it sort of like uh, there was a peak and then there was a valley. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. And I think in between that, what we saw was the rise of um, the new, like at, like when bebop comes and jazz ceases to be the, the popular dance form, we see the rise of rock and roll and of, and of rhythm and blues, which were both genres right. that really prominently featured the saxophone as a soloing instrument um especially initially yeah yeah. and the saxophone is like a huge uh it's it's so loud and it's so like tonally averse it it stands out from any mix and it's expressive which is why it was it was such a yeah it's so expressive it's it's so like uh quintessentially rock and roll right you know and like the innovation of rhythm and blues had a lot to do with like technological stuff so i mean like it was like the rise of the like amplified bass and like the electric guitar and all that kind of stuff but but crucially like alongside that for a long time there was the saxophone um including in rock and roll so so i think i think that's an interesting thing to note as well and then like you know out of that is when we get like there there were because there was still popular music with horns for a long time up until like the 70s and 80s like you know uh, george not george clinton but uh uh james brown and his band and his horn section yeah. um, changed pop music, changed the face of pop music. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and James Brown, who who is a soul musician, uh, as we understand him retrospectively, did consider himself to be a jazz musician mm. most of the time because he was sort of like in charge of the band, right? Uh, you know, 
and giving directions that way. Yeah, he's almost like a um, Cab Calloway kind of figure, like d- doing right. the vocals and like doing his cool dance moves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, I don't want to skip over anything. And and I and there is obviously so much that you and I have are, are leaving out of this conversation that is is more than worth talking about. And so, there's so many. That's honks. sort of just the nature of of our podcast and what we're gonna do here anyway is that we're going to like leave out a lot of stuff that we can absolutely talk about and go back to. So let us know if there's something that you are just absolutely furious about, but I want to skip to my favorite saxophone player. Hell yeah. Bill Clinton. That's what I was going to say. Is that what you were going to say? That's what I was going to say. Nice. It's because we talked about the episode. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, yeah. So so we, we get to this point, like, we've just seen the history of the saxophone has, you know, it's ebbed and flowed a little bit, but we, t- we took it right to the edge of the most avant-garde, you know, a figure like, um, you know, Ornette Coleman and free jazz in the sure. 60s, you know what I mean? Like, taking sure. it as far as you can possibly take the damn thing. Um, and then, uh, what, 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 Bill Clinton in the 90s? Yeah. Yeah, so we we come to this moment that is politically enormous, right? In June of 1992, uh, after he has won the the primary and received the Democratic nomination for president, uh, Bill Clinton goes on to the Arsenio Hall show, where in the opening segment, he plays Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel on saxophone. And some important things to note here is that Arsenio convinced him before the taping of the show that he needed to trade out his boring brown necktie for something more colorful colorful which he does mm-hmm. um and he also is given a pair of, of uh black ray-bans <laughs> and so he has this like this real blues brothers look yeah uh he's on late night tv right um and he, he's playing the saxophone right right um and that might seem to me and you to you and i now in 2020 that doesn't seem like anything right like right. that's that's not news even really you know more than just a clickbait headline but at the time tory clark which was uh george hw bush's press secretary said that it was embarrassing barbara walters called it undignified not a good look yeah it, it and it was a president uh, shouldn't sort honk. Of seen it as this it was seen as this giant gaffe. Like, why would you appear on late night television as a presidential nominee? It's just, it wasn't something that was done. The political class in America at the time was not known to, to, uh, to stoop so low. So quaint. They would probably say it, right? (laughs) You know, uh, but for Clinton to reach and tap into the votes that he needed, to to receive the presidency this is what he had to do and it was a at the at the time it was a candidacy full of uh get this a lot of uh controversy oh you don't say what what could he possibly yeah. have done i thought he was just you know bill Clinton. america's nice guy we all love him and i know we've, we've talked about this a little bit in uh in talking about this episode but arsenio hall at the time after clinton comes off stage from playing the saxophone says well it's just good to see a democrat blowing something other than the election Ooh, got him 
roasted. Uh, but then it's so good. Which is oh man, I wish Arsenio Hall had made that could just make that joke every year. Yeah, totally. And I, and I, I also but, wish that I had thought of in that moment to go. Right, but I just did it now, so maybe we can edit that or something. <laughs> but but Clinton uses this experience to to really just reach into the hearts and minds of a a group of people that he would have not had any access. Yeah, he reached to before, directly right? into a um, child's rib cage and pulled out their heart and ate it. I mean, and he's went. speaking to people uh, immediately after the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles, and he is self-deprecating you know there's a moment where arsenio asks him about um you know what is it like to smoke weed and not inhale (laughs) (laughs) kind of like ribs him on it and i don't know just kind of lets it go it doesn't make any sense he's like what is it did you not just inhale and and bill clinton's like yeah i don't know i don't know how to smoke weed and arsenio's like okay and then we're gonna go to commercial right (laughs) like um but he talks about after the riots he talks about uh, he has these, at the time, very uh, forward and thoughtful remarks on race and democracy, saying things as progressive as, we just need to really talk to one another. And uh, Is he wrong? <laughs> Is he wrong, folks? I mean, now we're, now we're all just, you know, we, we're at Thanksgiving. We're all just looking at our phones, right? Come on. Dude, it's so insane. He just it's like we just really need to He's still right. talk. We need to we need to really start talking to one another. I just think we got to listen to Bill Clinton. And these people with the riots, they just we don't really know about them until they start the riots. So we got to figure out who they are. <laughs> and every American needs to be working to his or her full potential. That's why I'm okay with gay Americans serving in the military. That's what I'm talking because about. Because we need everybody at 100%. That's correct. Love it. Love U.S. imperialism. Clinton almost almost got it in the bag, uh, but did something else. Then he, went, then he went, went a different direction. <laughs> but we see after that, you know, like uh, Mars introduces the blue M&M, uh, which appears in ads with black Ray-Bans mm. almost three years later. Uh, we also see the Democratic Party has the saxophone club, which is young oh Democrats. Oh, my They're, God. Like, trying to reach out to this younger generation oh, right that sucks um these are younger democrats who are wearing like saxophone ties. pins on their lapels and oh and black ray-bans and, and trying to talk to each other about how uh there's this uh especially in the early 90s there was this idea of american exceptionalism on the democratic side that we all need to be pitching in 110 percent, build this country back better than ever uh, where the fuck have you heard that Build before? back better, <laughs> right? folks. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, but look. Yeah, like, I think, but, but we see this, like, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say. Uh, I want to de- decode it, I was, right? I was just going to say, like, the, the Soviet Union has fallen. His, like, Soviet Union, fallen. History. Got him. Over. No more history, Gone. folks. Uh, you know, Fukuyama, he said it. He said, uh, we, uh, re- we've reached the end of history. And that's what it looked like, and that's what people were thinking about. You know what I mean? Was Bill Clinton playing the saxophone? Um, but not just that. I mean, well, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to step on your toes. But but there's also another saxophone figure of the '90s, right? A yellow one. Uh. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> there is, and I have more to talk okay. about. Okay, with, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, with I'm sorry. Her, but... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Slow down. Pause. But I do. Rewind. I do uh, really enjoy the the Bill Clinton. You know how much impact that had. Just that one right. late night TV appearance, um, and it wasn't just one incident. There are multiple incidents of Clinton playing the saxophone during his presidency and afterwards. Right. And it is still to the state sort of seen as this like oh well, this guy's just like a human being man right. he's like working class right. you know, it humanized him in the moment and that's what gained him these voters right. he was able to like uh really reach below the political class that he was in like he was in this and still is in this like very upper cased yeah. in american society he was reaching below right? the belt and um yeah really reaching below and saying like saying things as as progressive and uh, reactionary as we should really just talk to black people about some stuff. Yeah, and he would hear from like from you know vote concerned and black voters. People were like that'd be nice. He was hearing from concerned voters, and he was saying, "I feel <laughs> your pain." Yeah, and that's where we were at in the early '90s, which is very depressing. But but yeah, but, but like but like you know, it's interesting because so we've seen again like it's so. Jazz has gone from like folksy, earthy, this like indigenous art form to, you know, places like like a place like New Orleans to po- the the height of popular music to avant garde, politicized, you know, hipster music, um, to like kind of part of the milieu of like psychedelic rock and and the rise of rock and yeah. rock bands, and then we arrive sure. at this other place where like here's this figure who um, is capitalizing on all this for, for political ends, right? Yeah. Really, literally using it as a political prop. Right. Like, uh, it, it, the saxophone is, in a very real sense, just a prop mm-hmm. for a, a TV spot for Bill Clinton in this example. But it, there are echoes of this, you know, today, where we, we saw, like, Joe Biden use the uh, Despacito, <laughs> you know, like... Uh, or his I don't even know if that's really universally recognized as a gaffe or anything. It's hard to because know. I feel like I saw people posting about it unironically, just saying like, "Yeah, this yeah. guy," and other people saying like, "Can you fucking believe this?" Yeah. Either way, I want to just say I couldn't fucking believe it. It was pretty amazing. I mean, I could believe it, but it, it's just you know. And if you're not familiar with this, it's Joe Biden queuing up. On his in the middle of, I guess towards the end of a speech, right? Where where was he giving to... the speech though? It's important. It was I at like no it was at like a Latino event. It was like at a like a turnout the Latino you vote know, for the Democrats. Anywhere Latino America. That's right. <laughs> yeah, welcome to Latino and America. Towards the end of the event, he says, "I've you know I've got something for you here and." <laughs> just goes and looks on his phone and this is what i do at my house and biden said does anybody have the friends my friends hate me for it i am not well liked i mean and it's because i insist on playing things like let me go to youtube.com and search for metallica funnies right and and all your friends say, hey, could you, you know, just could you at least like you know connect to like a Bluetooth speaker or something and like not just play it out of your crappy little speaker there on your phone? You say no, and I say impossible. And I say no, just listen. <laughs> and this is Joe Biden playing 
Despacito out of his phone into the microphone. <laughs> That's right. While he's... Yeah. Right. It's, it's just so. And what is it that he you know, says? It's such at the an end? afterthought, or like, what? What is it that he I says after know. after he like stops playing the song? He's like, he's like, can you believe these guys? They're so talented. If if I had half their can talent, you know, like I'd be president already, or <laughs> like such some shit like that. Like, <laughs> can you believe? It's can so. You believe it's so it? patronizing. It's unbelievable. It's extremely patronizing, but it's it's that same idea of Bill Clinton appearing on Arsenio Hall's show and and just touting this like yeah man i just love playing the saxophone yeah hey we, we, we got rid of those ray-bans inside. and we we swapped them I out for some weed but i never inhaled and like we, we swapped out those it's fine you know we swapped out those ray-bans for uh, for a pair of aviator shades am i right yeah hell yeah exactly uh-huh yeah <laughs> up top uh which brings us to our our next figure uh close to the last figure lisa simpson uh who in the aftermath of this becomes uh probably one of the biggest proponents for the saxophone yeah she plays you know, very like sax. there's this lisa simpson effect that gets uh referenced a lot of the time when you talk when you start talking about this stuff and start researching it and it's that she influenced a lot of young women after her appearance in the tv show the simpsons uh to buy saxophones and just right. and to start playing in school bands to start taking more leadership role, roles in like uh in, in science classes and feminism and environmentalism and in so many different things uh and it's not that i'm trying to say that the simpsons is like the greatest tv show of all time there are a million reasons that The Simpsons is a terrible TV show. I mean, the seasons just kept getting better. And but you know what you're it, is, about. it is politically applicable because I, uh, there's a quote from Senator Tre- Ted Cruz, everyone's favorite senator, Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz um, who said that Democrats are the party of Lisa Simpson. And he was correct, folks. And he also said that Republicans are happily the party of Homer, Bart, Maggie, and Marge. Uh, he, he was trying to make a point here of like, you know, we're not bleeding heart liberals. We're yep. a family uh, party. And, you know, he really just fucked himself over it, which is a classic Ted Cruz move <laughs> is that everybody likes Lisa. And, no, and the Republicans really are just fucking Homer. I mean, uh, it, which is hilarious i mean i i i think that's an interesting thing that he said though because like someone that i've heard compared a lot to lisa simpson more recently is elizabeth warren um and uh, i think that's a really apt a really really apt comparison because there's a there's you know as much as i love lisa simpson as much as i, I always identified with her because she's you know the thinker she's the nerdy one she's the one who it, it like takes the like you know liberal position in the family at the same time she's extremely credulous right that, yeah like she, she she's willing to believe any like that people are just good and that they will always yeah. do good um constantly constantly even though they are always like falling through or, or and like, she's a you know nag. everything that they've planned is like not working out and she's a nag and she's a nag. she would do that thing like like That's you know the worst thing you look, can be i mean but listen like like you know as, as much as i respect and identify with that is something deeply annoying 
about being the person at Thanksgiving as she did, who's like wearing like the sandwich board that says like wall footballs fly, turkeys die and a native Americans cry. You know what I mean? Like while like her family's just trying to have a fucking family dinner. Like that's annoying. Uh, you know, like, like, you know what I mean? It's like, like, look, like it's and like, look, you know, we all need to have those conversations. We can all have those conversations about what the true meaning of Thanksgiving is. And I think we should. Um, but at the same time, you know, Lisa Simpson is representative of the kind of person who just can't let something go. Yeah, no, for sure. So I, I just, I think and it's important to, to point out that like, as much as I love Lisa Simpson, like there is something deeply insufferable about her character. And that's how she, that's how she was written to be. Sure. And, and it was, so the impetus for Lisa becoming a saxophone player was a visual gag that Matt Groening was, he was just really taken with the sight of a, uh, a young girl holding a saxophone because it's such a, like a, a weirdly shaped instrument and it's like kind of bulky and it's also like sorrowful. Right, right. Right. And so like, as soon as you see her playing it, you assume that she has this like, uh, wisdom beyond her years. Type, right. Right. Uh, aesthetic. Right. Um, and it, that was like, that's part of the gag of the cartoon. It's a fucking cartoon. Right. Like it's all gags. Right. It's not supposed to be this like meaningful cultural criticism or, or political statement in any way. Right. Sure. But that, that was a big part of it. And, um, I think what, what is important here is that there was a, a craze that followed it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because young girls did buy saxophones and, and Lisa did appear in many magazines as a face of feminism totally. in and of the time. Sure. And and the show is still going on today. Unfortunately. And you see Lisa <laughs> You see Lisa trying to do such things as read Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass to sue the beached whale. Right. Or try to genetically engineer a tomato to cure world hunger. Right, right, right. Or design a talking doll that possesses the wisdom of Gertrude Stein. Classic, classic Lisa Simpson and thing. And down-to-earth good looks of Eleanor Roosevelt. And, it, yeah, it is this, like, on-its-face liberal uh, Democrat type of, this is a problem, we've got to solve it immediately. But it also is, you know, she's a, a feminist, a vegetarian, an in- environmentalist, a Buddhist uh scientist uh an orator and a thinker a social justice like she's just the emblem of especially the late 90s and early 2000s she's like a social justice warrior right right she's trying to solve these like macro problems by individualistically singling people out and it mostly happens to be like her brother or her father who are also cartoons <laughs> as it happens um but you know what i mean it's like she tries to say like dad you've got to stop eating meat you're destroying the world and, right. it, and it's like you know we know for sure that homer simpson eating meat as a cartoon character obviously impacts nothing uh but even if we are able to like talk one person out of eating meat it's not going to do the environmental uh, reversal that we're expecting or, right you know like it's it's a systemic problem that we're seeing lisa try to solve right on an individual level totally yeah i mean and I, I think that's pretty pretty emblematic of that but also 
Here's the most, more important part, Max. Are you ready? I'm ready. Did you did you know this? Lisa played the saxophone. Okay, the Barry sax. Can you tell me how that happened? Well, yeah. So there's an episode called uh, "Moaning Lisa," where she encounters a figure um, named Bleeding Gums Murphy, who's actually like uh, I, I guess like. She, she encounters him. I think, I forget exactly why she's so sad, but she's like walking around with her berry sax as one does when they're sad. And she encounters this guy playing saxophone on a, on a bridge. And I guess it was like a reference to Sonny Rollins who like famously like fell off the map and like disappeared kind of a thing. So like bleeding mm-hmm. guns Murphy's like this like mysterious, uh, jazz, jazz musician, um, who teaches her how to like, I don't know if he teaches her how to play, but he like, uh, like gives her the gift of jazz you know what i mean it's like like it's yeah. sort of like, uh, like a mentor uh type figure yeah and that's sort of like you know thinking too far into it is very emblematic of like that same sort of white liberal democrat right. sensibility of like no i've i'm not a bad guy uh i'm a vegetarian and i also play the saxophone so right you know and and I, I think it, before you tell me about how I acted in that Starbucks, uh, <laughs> yeah, right, right, <laughs> you know, yeah, this is who I am, totally I'm okay. And but I, I think that's a, that's part of the thing is like you know in the eighties and nineties, like I think she was really a stand-in for like the butt of a lot of jokes because the audience was expected to identify more with Homer and with Bart than anybody else, yeah. and was like you know expected to be like annoyed with Lisa. And I think, you know, us, you know, people who, who have histories as being bleeding hearts ourselves, I think we I also identified with Lisa. But I, I think the a lot of she was really the butt of a lot of jokes, like like people in the 90s loved right. to make jokes about vegans. You know what I mean? Like that was like the funniest possible thing or like or like make like drinking cappuccinos or like, you know, like being a fancy person in the 90s was like the funniest possible thing. Um, so I think that's really what she was representative of um in that in that era but you know like you're saying like really and like the reason i like this bleeding gums murphy episode was because there's like a real heart to her that she's like she's wants to express herself you know what i mean or like the episode with dustin hoffman as her teacher who she like kind of falls in love with it's like it's like almost a tearjerker you know what i mean like um yeah but but i I think you know your, your your point is right that i also like at every turn she's totally representative of um of like how the democratic party i think was seen and wanted to be seen in, in a lot of ways but also yeah. like it's like the the negative parts of that too very negative of just like only the scolding mm-hmm. and the hand wringing right and none of the action right right and right, lisa right. honestly takes probably more action than the democratic party has ever but <laughs> right but like, it's all the, but it's all there directed is just more hand wringing and yeah exactly yeah that there's just more of this hand wringing and like, you really shouldn't do that. And it's, and it's that's like, kind of it, you know. And that is kind of the model for activism that I think a lot of people come away from, you know, growing up in the '90s with is like just be, basically Definitely. just being annoying. Yeah, I think that's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, straight up. I'm I am just trying to be annoying. That's that's true. This leads me to are the last in the list of saxophone players that I have. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. And it's Kamasi Washington. 
the famous Kamasi. Yeah, who who played on uh, To Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar, mm-hmm. um, who has put out uh, a multitude of albums himself right. as a composer and a, and a performer, um, but who was also seen as the figurehead of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, a jazz saxophonist who was seen as representative of that movement in, in this current time. Right. Uh, and this is someone who is like really taking a lot of notes and building on them from these past examples that we've talked about. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that there is a, a huge uh, experience of, of black revolutionary music and, and of a, a cultural expressionism to build off of, uh, especially with jazz and to build these other worlds where you're not saying like, here's what things should be, Mm -hmm. but you're saying rather like, here's what things could be expressively, uh, which is, I think a a huge, um, jump forward in, in in thought and in music and genre. But, uh, yeah, I wonder what like experiences you've had with this performer. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think like, you know, a lot of people, I was really, really impressed with To Pimp a Butterfly um, as, a, as a project. And I've, I've heard, I think, some of, of Kamasi Washington's kind of work outside of that. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, I, I don't listen to much, ja- much contemporary jazz. Um, I think, like, when I do want to listen to jazz, I kind of just listen to the same stuff that I'm like, familiar with from, from back in the day, I guess, from before my time, from before our time. Um, but I think it's, you know, I mean, he's clearly an extremely, extremely talented player and a really, really talented composer. And, but I do think it's interesting that, like, he's, he's, like, half concert mu- musician, half popular musician, right? That, like, like right. ever since the 70s, right. jazz has had to be a fusion. It's, 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 it's ceased to be the center of popular music in any kind of real way. Or, or even, like, yeah, the center of, like, you know what I mean? high high art music potentially you know like um or or i guess it's been relegated to that status as like a concert form so like if he's going to be doing his own solo stuff it's like yeah everyone's going to be sitting down everything but but he's you know because of his moment because of like just being in the right place at the right time being so talented he's straddling those two worlds but basically single-handedly at least in people's accounts like seems to have raised awareness about jazz again but but i i think more than anything it's like continues to be really prominent as a flavor in hip-hop um more than anything else which which to some extent is like look like that's not new you know i mean like tribe called quest was using tons of jazz samples and like they're just like one you know hip-hop group that was doing that kind of stuff right but like um i think going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation about like the harlem renaissance is like the history of of jazz music and of and of African American popular music and a lot in a lot of and American popular music in a larger sense has been like constantly kind of looking back over the course of the twentieth century and like um, reclaiming, reconfiguring, reframing, um, and and like in the process, like uh, you know this, this tradition of music and then in the process kind of like um, writing a history into existence and like creating the meaning um 
out of that process. So like, you know, Kendrick Lamar was in that album was, I think, really consciously drawing on jazz and soul and funk, including musicians like George Clinton and, and these kinds of folks um, in order to draw that historical trajectory explicitly. Um, and, and that album, I think, is really clearly from its album cover, which is like, a, you know, a bunch of his friends and collaborators in front of the White House. It's clearly it's supposed to be a political statement. Um, yeah. But it's also, I think, significant that it's one that he doesn't return to uh, in his next album. Right. You know, that it, it, was, it was kind of like a moment and it was like kind of a the Obama moment, for lack of a better yeah. way of saying it. You know what I mean? That I think we're, we're looking back on now and it's, it's not as rosy and it never was as rosy as we might have imagined. But it did, you know, create this like window, this opening um, of of you know like political reaction against like the the fact that things haven't really improved in a significant way for uh, for most americans but certainly for for african americans since the 70s in terms of like their income or or anything like that and and i think it's really significant that it was under under obama under our first black president that 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 the movement for black lives had to emerge um you know what i mean so so it's yeah. it's interesting because like it, it's it's kind of two-sided in that way that it was like but it's both this opening up but it seems like it just as quickly it was kind of closed back down um it's this constant contradictory sort of life that that the saxophone and that jazz has always had right is this like constant opening up and closing down i think but i think like you know, that's, what, that's what we've seen through the timeline yeah and to kind of put a fine finer point on it it's like we're kind of at a moment where like now yeah like jazz and saxophones and that kind of stuff is i think again esoteric avant-garde you know what i mean like like uh, maybe a flavor uh to be included to be sampled um but you know we're it's not the 90s it's not third wave ska it's not you know what i mean um all those weird uh acts who were just like honking and hooting and and banging on trash cans you know what i mean like the, the moment of like all that money in the music industry just like getting just thrown at any band that seemed like promising at all like after nirvana or whatever just has evaporated that's not what the market's like anymore you know so like now it's like we're, it's all drake it's all like stripped down the most basic um possible thing the cheapest kind of possible music that we can make that people can make um sure. so in some ways i think like to pimp a butterfly yeah. was kind of like a you know um is sort of like uh what's the, what's the word i'm looking for here kind of like an exception you know well i think it was and also i think kendrick very intentionally tried to create mainstream music that incl- incorporated jazz for sure you know no doubt was trying to say something that like this is possible you know like this is something i can do right and then but then his, on his next beforehand album- there was this idea that it was like that's not how you can't get a hit. You can't have music on the radio that has like jazz music. Right. It, it, it can't happen. Right. And I think, look, I mean, you know, historically, artists from marginalized, you know, from um, who, who are from marginalized groups have historically been put in that hot seat of having to be like a, a political leader and an artist and all this kind of stuff in one. And I totally sympathize and empathize with, you know, feeling uncomfortable with that position because a it's unreasonable. B, it's a lot of responsibility. And so it makes, you know, I, I really, really admire Kendrick Lamar and I totally understand why in his next album he 
you know, like, like he he didn't feel like he wanted to, you know, but kind of like Bob Dylan, like he he got tired of like being like an activist musician to some extent. You know what I mean? Like I can't imagine that kind of pressure um, to put on yourself or to be put on you. But there's a line in in one of the tracks on Damn where he says, you know, like um, on my last album, I tried to uplift the black artist. But there's a difference between black artists and whack artists, you know. Like he was saying, like, look, like I'm just trying to do my thing. I'm trying to be yeah. the best at what I do. Um, I'm not. Everything I do is not about, you know, my skin color necessarily. It's not, you know what I mean. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting contradiction, an interesting moment that we're at right now um, when it comes to popular music and and you know, like the the role of the saxophone. Like again, I think it's like pretty clear that it's like it's concert music. It's 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 you know there are people doing really exciting stuff in it but it's still something that you it's it's it hasn't quite like you know i don't know but we haven't seen the fourth wave of the sky yet i guess is what i'm saying so i think that's where we're gonna leave it is let's wait for the fourth wave of Sky. are we gonna wait or are we gonna make it happen i think we all i'll just be waiting patiently what i want is uh is swing revival to come back i want um mighty mighty boss stones that's uh, what we all want i want uh the um new jack swing the 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 very short-lived you know sub-genre of hip-hop that that <laughs> is like jazz in- inspired you know what i mean i want movies like the mambo kings um i want it all Finally. i want it now i want the mask <laughs> it's, all right i want jim carrey in the mask I that's what i want it i want zoot suit riot <laughs> is that too much to ask i think it is unfortunately damn it but maybe 2021 we're you know i'm getting an email right now from our lawyers that that is that is actually too much to ask <laughs> yeah unfortunately damn it uh well i hope i hope you've enjoyed this discussion of the saxophone throughout history this is uh just in case you were wondering every historical instance of a saxophone um by date um can, can you imagine that podcast just us it listing is just the names of songs that included the saxophone yeah <laughs> and the list the list that we've created is complete that's correct that is it there will be no additions we are experts but there will and we are infallible and we are infallible although this this podcast was not uh technically a list there will be a playlist if you want to, find there will that. be a playlist. We're gonna make up uh, the horniest playlist you've ever clapped oh your ear God. on. Clapped your ear. On. <laughs> <laughs> you know how you, you you can clap eyes on things. Why can't you clap ears on things? Don't judge me. All right. All right. Okay. Please stay tuned <laughs> for our, our our horniest playlist uh, coming soon to you at our patreon near you uh follow us on instagram and twitter share our shit it really helps out i know i hear a lot of podcasters say this but uh yeah really just share our shit it's cool share our shit it makes me feel it makes me feel good listen we have dozens we have dozens and dozens of listeners i know some of you are on apple podcasts you know what you got to do there you got to like you got to subscribe. You got to give it five stars because this is a five star quality podcast and you have to write a review. It's going to help people find us. If you like this, if you like us, if you're a fan, then you'll do this. It's not hard. Yeah. Thank That's- you.
I couldn't have said it better. Mwah. Mwah. Thank you for listening. Good talking to you, Max. Kisses. Kisses. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) Hell yeah.